the jazz as a black woman and as a black girl, it drew me in because I understood it. I understood it because I could innately see myself, innately feel myself as well. Hello and welcome to the Terpsichore podcast. We're back in 2023 to bring you more intimate conversations with leading women in dance. If you're new to the podcast, my name is Emily May. I'm a British-born dance writer and critic, and I've been based in Berlin, Germany since 2018. Named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus, and also an allusion to historian Sally Baines's seminal book on postmodern dance, Terpsichore and Sneakers, Terpsichore celebrates female dancers, choreographers, and bodies in motion by interviewing leading women from the dance industry. For episode 18, I was delighted to invite the legendary Dolly Henry MBE onto the podcast to discuss her life, career, and the female dance pioneers that have inspired her. Over the past 40 years, Dolly has led a respected career as a performer, choreographer, theatre director and creative jazz artist and educator and is recognized as one of the most formidable exponents of artistic and creative jazz dance in the UK and globally. After working for many years on diverse projects in the West End, film and TV, as well as in concert dance, jazz theatre, cabaret and the commercial dance sector, Dolly decided to found the premier jazz theatre company in the UK, Body of People or BOP, in 1996 with her partner, the jazz composer Paul Jenkins. Now in its 26th year, BOP has produced an array of original Original productions and taught countless workshops with the aim of promoting jazz and advocating for it to be respected as an art form alongside other contemporary and classical genres. This mission has also seen Dolly and Paul write The Essential Guide to Jazz Dance, a landmark text charting the development of jazz theatre, and established Jazz Theatre Arts UK, a network for jazz dance practitioners developed in partnership with One Dance UK. Currently, Bop is working towards their inaugural Jazz Arts Rewide Festival, which will consist of a day of workshops and an evening of performances at The Place, London. Before the festival takes place on the 27th of May and 3rd of June, I couldn't wait to speak to Dolly about where her intense passion for jazz came from, how it sustained her and what her hopes are for the future of the art form. So hi Dolly, thank you so much for joining us today on the Terpsichore podcast. How are you doing and where are you speaking to us from? Hey, good morning Emily, how are you? Lovely to be here. I'm in quite a sunny Sutton, Surrey at the moment and taking some time out to speak to you in between all the admin and all preparations for what's about to come up in a few weeks time. So yeah, already in banging to go is the word I would say. Yeah, amazing. Well yeah, thank you so much for giving us your time as you prepare for a very exciting project which I'm sure we'll talk about later. To begin with, I wanted to start with asking you what we always ask people on the podcast by starting at the very beginning and asking you if you can remember what your first experiences of dance were and how you became interested in the art form. As a child, I believe, and this is what was told to me by my parents, I was quite energetic. Anytime music came on, on the radio or the TV, I would be the one of the family that would get up and dance and sing and just entertain everybody through it. I was also ill. I from bronchitis and pneumonia as a baby. It was advised by my doctors that I should do something that would exercise my lungs and exercise my breathing. Being active as I was, my parents thought, well, she loves dance, she loves music, maybe it's dance that she needs to go into. So at the age of four and a half, I was put into a dancing school called Molly Mayhews in Northampton, where I grew up. And at four and a half, that was it. I'd found my little bug. I'd found somewhere where I could almost, I wouldn't say be myself at that point, but definitely found my feet in water that I knew and I understand it. It almost felt very natural to me to be in that environment around other children and learning something that I believed, yeah, 
this is what I want to be. This is what I'm going to be. I want to be a dancer. I studied ballet at the beginning. It was all very much ballet technique and RAD and ISTD. In my heart of hearts, I think even as a very, very young girl training as a dancer, I really believed that I could have the opportunity to be a ballerina because that was what I was learning. There wasn't jazz. There wasn't tap. There wasn't all of those things. I was doing syllabus work, but I really kind of excelled at the classical dance. It was something that I knew I could do. I was pretty good at it, actually. And, you know, going through exams was coming out with honours. And I really believed, I guess, about seven, eight, nine. Okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be somebody who's on stage. I want to be a performer. I want to do this as a living. I want to make a career out of it. And that's very young. I kind of had the epiphany around seven and people think I'm a bit crazy, but that's really where it came about. Around seven, I was going, okay, this is definitely what I want to do. And around the age of 13, I started to do competitions where I was entered into competitions with the school for the school as an individual and as a group dancer. And I was winning. And it was like, I wasn't just winning in the ballet sections. I was winning in the national section. I was winning in the jazz or the modern as it was then and the tap sections and then I really knew okay I can actually do this in many ways I think the dance found me and I ran to it and went yeah you and I are going to get on really really well for me getting into dance was kind of a lifesaver physically from a health point of view but also mentally I think that's really interesting you bring that up about the physical or the health kind of benefits of dance because so much on this podcast I end up talking about the art and the choreography and the expression but end up forgetting about that side of it well touch wood at 61 I'm still going and I'm still throwing myself around I really talk about this in many of the seminars that I do and talks with students that I teach of the power of art, the power of art to heal us, to get us through bad times. I know that a lot of the creativity that I do through my own work with the company is based on life experience. So it's also a place where I can exercise and heal all that pain and also all the happiness that comes out of life as well. So for me, I kind of look at it from a spiritual point of view. I've realized that that is what's touching me, is there's a spirituality and a connection and a vibration between movement music and dance and then my health and my well-being and if I can try and control those two things and put them together and work together I think that's probably why I still look like I'm 25. (laughs) You talked about starting off with ballet and then coming more towards jazz and tap and other styles and now you are best known for how much you've pioneered jazz and jazz theatre in the UK. At the beginning what was it that drew you specifically towards jazz especially after you'd had such a strong ballet focus at the beginning? Well, it's quite interesting because in my home life, you know, my parents are from the Caribbean, my father's from Grenada, my mother's Jamaican, but she's half Indian and half Jamaican. So I have kind of a little mix in me. My father was an avid jazz fan. So that was constant around me. That would be a weekend thing. And we would sit together, me and my dad, and listen to old jazz records and talk about the old stars and Ella Fitzgerald or Billie Holiday, Billy Eckstein, you know, Miles Davis, all of these things. So I ensconced in that from a very, very early age. I watched a lot because for me as a black creative and a black dancer, there wasn't very much for me to see on TV or in films particularly being a Brit. And so I was always drawn to the American sensibility of, okay, jazz is American, but actually it can be British too. We just don't do it here. And I kind of really knew that very early on. So when it got to the point at dancing school, when they said, oh, you should do modern as well as ballet dolly, 
it was no brainer, really. I wanted to learn everything. I wasn't a child that wanted to stay in one place. I wanted to learn everything so I could have all this knowledge and versatility, I think is the word I'm looking for, to be versatile in understanding the art forms and what they are and forms that they are. And ballet is very much a restricted art form. And I think for me, the jazz as a black woman and as a black girl, it drew me in because I understood it. I understood it because I could innately see myself, innately feel myself as well. I understood the music. I understood where the history was coming from. And although I'm Brit, and this is American, I connected to that because I had nothing else to connect to in Britain at the time. So for me, finding the jazz and finding the tap and all of that was like, whoa, because it then allowed me to break away from the rigidity of the ballet and actually find that freedom of expression, which is very much the jazz pull. When we talk about freedom of expression in jazz, that's exactly what it is. Is about being free because it comes from people who have led a life of trying to be free. Even at a very early age, I kind of understood that. I understood that this was something I was drawn to naturally. It wasn't something that I was scared of. Jazz was something that was like, yeah, that's my calling. And in many ways, it said, come on, Dolly, you need to be here. You know, you're not going to make it. Because in many ways, I was told I would never make it as a ballet dancer for the simple fact. And it's sad to say, but at that time in the 60s and the 70s, there were no black ballerinas in any companies in the UK. If that was something I wanted to do, I would have to go to America or go to another place that accepted black as the norm in a ballet company. And that certainly wasn't happening in the UK in the 60s and the 70s. And I was told that, you know, although you're good at doing ballet, Dolly, you're never actually going to make it professionally. It's just not there for you. So in many ways, jazz came in to say, no, this is your art form, Dolly. This is where you need to go because this is where you can be you. You're not restricted to anything. You can still be you. And more so, I could be black. <laughs> I could actually be black and do what is naturally my own innate dance because jazz is a black art form. And so why deny? that. So it was a massive turn for me. By the age of 13, that was it. I know where I'm going. I really know where I'm going. There's definitely the jazz world. As it was, we didn't see any jazz companies in the UK. And there still really haven't been any recognised jazz companies in the UK. And so it was something that I suppose a little seed in my head said, oh, I want to do this and I want to make this great. I want to do something great with this thing called jazz. Didn't know what it was, but I knew I had the calling to do it. I've used that as my driving force all the way through. So it was meant to be. The jazz is the jazz and it was meant to be. <laughs> Amazing. At that time when you were younger and you said you were looking over to America for inspiration and things going on there, who were some of the choreographers or performers or musicians that particularly inspired you at that time, do you think? When it came to the dance, it was still really hard. But in the end, you know, the people that I looked at who were my icons and my inspirations were people like Catherine Dunham, Pearl Primus, Tally Beatty. These are all black jazz artists who became choreographers and taught a technique and taught through education and lectured about it and traveled and researched about the whole idiom and I was like well okay they have taken the jazz and they've turned it into something artistic and it was the first time that I was able to see artistic black jazz rather than commercial jazz because apart from the films the musicals that were generally performed by white created by white they were a certain type and actually you didn't see yourself in that either but actually if you turn the page and you look at the innovators and the originators 
that was where I was going. So I always knew that it wasn't a commercial line that I wanted to take. There was very much something about being artistic. And I kind of always looked at Catherine Dunham as the empress of jazz in that sense of black women in dance. Later on in life, you know, I worked with Diane McIntyre, who had Souls in Motion, which is a jazz theatre company out in New York. We worked together here in the UK we became friends. She took me under her wing. She mentored me. I went to America. She introduced me to people like George Faison, who's now my father in jazz. He's my biggest mentor. Lewis Johnson, all of these people that had made a mark for jazz in America. These were like icons. You know, my 20s and my early 30s was around these people. I traveled a lot to America. I was mentored by them. I schooled by them. I went to Alvin Ailey School. I met the dance there. I became friends with Judith Jameson, who took me under her wing and said, OK, how are you going to do this? I showed my work that I was trying to share with the world and it would be them that I would go to. Unfortunately, I didn't have anybody here in the UK that I could say, look, this is what I'm doing. What do you think? Because there were no jazz artists in the UK. There were no jazz companies. So there was no precedence for it. People say to me, well, you're very American in your sensibility, Dolly. But it's not that. I was schooled by them. I was mentored by them. I was taught by them. You know, all the education that I had here in the UK, and it sounds like I'm dissing colours and here, but I'm not. I'm just marking it out as it was because it's an interesting journey. How would somebody become a jazz choreographer if there's nothing to relate to in their own country. It was because of that that I chose to make that huge decision. I have to be that one. I'm going to be that one that's going to change that. I got my support, as I say, from America. They said, you need to keep doing this. It's happening here in New York. It's happening in America, but it's slowly petering out with the commerciality of everything. How are you going to keep it going in the UK? And I said, well, there isn't anybody else doing it. So I guess I'll be okay because there isn't really a competition for it. So I can set a precedence for it. But at least I'm coming through with the right information. I'm doing it from the right source. I'm taking the history context and lineage and I'm placing that in front of everything, you know, because I've always said, you know, often we hear the word jazz and we actually don't know what it means. It's just a word and it sounds fun and it's exciting and it can be trivialized, but actually it's a massive art form that has kind of peppered everything over centuries now. So, you know, I wanted to pay homage and I've always wanted to pay homage to the lineage and the context and the history of what it was. So I think to know that I had to go to the source, which was America. You you learned so much from those people. How did that impact you in terms of training then? I did the whole gamut. I'm one of those that went through the whole journey of it. At 16, I, well, actually at 15, I got into Lane Theatre Arts. I auditioned for Bush Davis because I was still thinking maybe I'm going to go for the Bally Edge. But then I auditioned for Birds College and Lane Theatre Arts. And I got into all three of them at 15. And then it was a choice. Which one do I go to? And actually at the time for me, Lane theatre arts seemed to have the better curriculum that I thought would give me a more rounded and more grounded understanding and education and build on my technique to continue into a professional career. As it happened, Lane Theatre Arts from 1979 to 1981, I was the only black student. Although I had an amazing time for myself because I got out of it what I needed to, I think there were limitations on what were being given to me and what I was allowed to receive because it wasn't there in the education of it, to be quite honest. So obviously everything was pushed to the ballet and I was already in the advanced levels of my ballet training. 
So I took all the exams for that and I've got my teaching exams for being a ballerina or a ballet teacher even. I did the national and I did the tap, but it was the jazz. They knew that that was where I was coming from. They knew that this is somebody, she's creative. She's not just a student. From the first year I was choreographing. I'd already made my mind up. I mean, I have to go back a little bit because when I was at school at seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, I used to carry around with me a tape recorder, which my father had bought me and play music at playtime and then get everybody to learn my choreography. So by the time I got to college at 16, there was this thing called prelims and it was in-house competitions and anyone from the students could be part of it. So I decided to create a piece to Michael Jackson working day and night and I won the competition and it was reviewed in the Dancing Times and somewhere I've still got that. This was when I really kind of knew, oh, okay, I'm definitely going to do this. But The support mechanisms that I had and the kind of racial bias that I had at Lanes made it kind of difficult for me to really see if I could make my way. And I became very isolated while I was at college, even though I was having a great time doing what I needed to do to better myself. I felt very isolated because they didn't understand me and there was only one of me. That was pretty tough when you're going to an office and you're told who's got an equity card and you go to the office and you say, I've got my equity card and you're actually told blatantly to your face, oh, and I can't use you, you're black. In many ways, I think it probably would have sent people around the bend, but I'm made of stronger and harder disposition of that. And also I was brought up to understand what racism can be. And so for me, what Lane Theatre Arts taught me is work hard, work for you and make it right for you. But this is going to be tough. And my father said it to me, he said, there are three things that are going to be a problem for you. One, you're black, two, you're a woman, and three, you've got a mouth and you talk. That kind of mantra has always been in my head. Okay, I have to look at all three of those and go, okay, how do I define myself in all of that? The talker in me was the way that I got through by knowing what I was talking about, by understanding what was going on around me, by pointing it out by confronting a lot of the time, actually, and saying, no, I'm not going to put up with that. Because if that's your way of stopping me from getting there, it's not going to happen because I'm going whether you want me to or not. So yeah, I would say being at Lane Theatre Arts was a wonderful experience. I'd left home and I was on my own and this is me living life. But at the same time, it toughened me up to understand, ah, this is what the industry is going to be like, Dolly. It's not going to be easy. That's not made me hard. That's made me more aware, more conscious. You learn the business. You know, I often say to my students when I lecture, it's called show business. But actually, if you don't know the business, you ain't going to get to the show. And the business is dealing with all the other minutiae that is there to stop you. <laughs> Once we get to the show, that's fabulous because you're doing the show. But it's all the other stuff that leads up to that. And I think that's my producer head learning very early, very early on in my career, how to produce yourself, let alone how to produce the work. You've got to produce yourself to be able to stand up to all that you believe in to fight through. Talking about the business and the industry, how did you go from like transitioning from Lane Theatre Arts into the professional world? Obviously you were choreographing very early and you're known so well now for your choreography and creative work, but were you also performing? Did it all happen at once? It all happened at once because even when I was at Lane Theatre Arts, I got work. You know, Miss Lane would bring people in, they want to see dancers for this or they want something for an acting job. So my understanding of the industry was already 
worked within. That's what I'm saying. There were great things about lanes that allowed me to understand what the industry was about, but also learning how to deal with it. There was a choreographer called Oliver Briac. He worked with Betty Lane to use the dancers there for his shows in Europe. And he auditioned me in the first year and she wouldn't let me go. He auditioned me in the second year and I was allowed to go. So through that, I managed to get my equity, my preliminary equity card. I worked with Oliver Briac out in France, out in Switzerland, out in Austria. These were my first experiences of working professionally. And then I would come back to college and I'd do my terms. And then again, I'd go off in the summer or go off in the Easter and I'd go and work with Briac. So I worked with him for three years. The last two years at college, I was working for him. And then when I left, I did another year. In between working for him, I was picked up by uh, Dougie Squires, who's a legendary British choreographer. So I was very lucky. He saw me in a competition. I did the All England. He wrote me a note afterwards when I won and said, one day we will work together. I still have that card in my little treasure box of things that have been given to me that have given me props to go, you can do this, you can do this. Well, anyway, he sent me this card saying, you're fantastic, blah, 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 blah. We will work together. And yet there it happened kind of a year and a half after I was one of his second generation dancers. And he was wonderful, Dougie Squires. For me at that time in the early 80s, it was somebody that didn't see your colour, he just saw your talent. He saw your energy, he saw your passion and he thrived on that. And if you came at him with anything, he was so open-armed about it he was wonderful and I will always be indebted to him and grateful to him for giving me opportunities that many didn't because he didn't have any barriers eventually I became his assistant choreographer and assistant to the company and dance captain and we went to Cannes we did TV we did musical theatre together so that was fabulous so there was Briac from college then there was Dougie that kind of took me under his wing very 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 early from those little steps Doors open, doors open. TV started to happen. Film started to happen. I did a film not long after that for David Putnam. And I only went in as a dancer and I ended up getting a supporting role of Joe, who was the leader of the dance team. All these things were just happening. I would go off and I would do TV abroad and then come back. And then I worked for Arlene Phillips on a, a TV show. And I was one of six black dancers, actually, that were on a TV show and it was on for three months. I think once the door opened and people started to know who I was it rolled and I'm not being egotistical about it it was just that it was just rolling and I just lucky to be able to go from one job to another but they would be so different and the choreography was always there because working with these people I ended up being actually I ended up being assistant to Briac in France I was his assistant for a while for the last two years that I worked with him. Then when I worked with Dougie, I became his assistant and dance captain. Then I worked with Tudor Davis, who was working with Russ Abbott. That turned another corner for me. I became his assistant. Then I got into the West End and I became Gillian Gregory's assistant. And so it went on. It was not that I was like the bridesmaid. All these jobs allowed me to learn my craft, learn how to produce a show, learn how to light a show, learn what costumes needed to be sorted out or how you were going to dress something, you know, how you would formulate and make positions on stage. I was just going, I was sucking everything up because I knew this is what I needed to do. Without all of that back knowledge, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today because I do kind of think people are trying to go into the industry without any back knowledge 
or back expertise or depth into what they're doing. I see it. And it's not that I'm angry or anything. I just think, well, how did you get there? What did you do? Actually, if I was a performer, why would I work with you? Because do you really know anything? And for me, it's about working with people that know something more than you and that you can learn from and you can train with and you can be mentored by so that when you do eventually do your thing, you're coming with not just your stuff, but other people who are greater than you. So I'm about stepping on people's shoulders, not in a bad way, in a really positive way. All of these people that have given me these wonderful opportunities to find myself as an artist, I bring them with me. I don't leave them behind because without them, I wouldn't be here today. Before now, there were people doing it and actually you are stepping on their shoulders. They shouldn't be forgotten. There have been gifts from teachers that have given me things to say, okay, this is for you, doll. And I reteach it, but I always tell students, what you're learning now, this exercise or whatever it was, was given to me by, boom, boom, boom. And I give them a history lesson, who that person was, so that they understand context and lineage. Because what we're doing is not new. Two episodes ago, I spoke with Siobhan Davies and she was saying about how, although it's really great, we're always trying to innovate, that we can be very forgetful and that she's not hoping that, oh, that I as an individual, like egotistically get remembered, but that just what everyone's been working on through history creates this lineage and this heritage. I really think it's so important because actually without history, we don't have anything. We stand on history, on everything that we do. You know, it's quite interesting that people think they've invented something that actually in the wheels of the art form that we're in, it's been done before you're not inventing it you are taking it on another journey that is your journey I'm not reinventing jazz I'm just taking the lineage of it and going what's the point of jazz it's an improvisatory art form so it can't be like somebody else's that's number one but number two it still has history and context and lineage and we know that through looking at that we can work things that we don't understand we can understand things even better there's so many things that I think oh my God, if I didn't know that from a specific person or I hadn't read that, I wouldn't know how to adapt that into my own life. So everyone that's given me something, I kind of bow to them a little bit because, yeah, why shouldn't I? Why should they be forgotten? And as I remind people, I'm just the vessel. After all these experiences and taking in from all these people that inspired you and that you said you learned from and shaped you, you founded Body of People, or BOP as it's known, in 1996. Obviously, we've talked a lot about you wanting to do this because it not really being done in the UK in this way but what triggered you at that point or what motivated you at that point specifically to get it going and start the company? I had just come out of six years in the West End and the last show that I did in the West End was Sophisticated Ladies and it was a Duke into music and it was done in America and then it came to the UK and I was one of the original cast of the UK company. After that I looked around me and I was looking at dance companies and I was going wow if I wanted to go into a dance company like I did six years prior, there was nothing there. I'm out of the West End now. I've done all of this. I've got all this goodies in my pocket that I can put somewhere. And I'm still looking around and there are no jazz companies. And I'm thinking, wow, something needs to be done about this. It was the time I was at that place in my career where I was ready to take on another avenue, open another door and see what was possible. Yeah, in 1995, I was commissioned by the Arts Council for a project called Nubian Steps, which was to highlight and celebrate young black choreographers 
didn't matter if it was male or female, but it happened to be female that year. There was myself and two of the choreographers and we were commissioned to do a 15 minute piece each that was going to be at the South Bank at the Purcell Room. And I was like, okay, this is my opportunity to do what I think I can do. I put a piece together based on all blues, which was Miles Davis. And I said, okay, I'd like to have a six piece jazz band. Because my belief was, unless people see jazz dance with jazz music, how will they ever understand that it's beyond the commerciality that we all have been expected to understand and believe? That was my point. I'd been in the commercial side doing jazz. That was musical theatre, but nobody was doing the artistic side of it. No one was looking at, take it away from the commerciality and look at what we can do with the music, with the dancers. So... There I was doing Miles Davis, took his album Touches of Miles, and I did four little vignette pieces based on his music with live musicians, and it was amazing. I remember standing at the back of the auditorium when I did that, thinking, wow, and I burst into tears. I looked at my work, and I stood out of myself, and I said, okay, watch it as if it's not yours, Dolly, and I looked at it, and I went you know, there's something there. And then it wasn't until the end when people came up and they said, my God, Dolly, what was that? That was amazing. You need to carry on. And it really springboarded. And from that point on, I went and limited myself. I found a name for the company because that little project allowed me to know that I could do this. I could start a company. I could do something here. Previous to that, I'd worked with Jazz Exchange, which was Sharon Ray. She had a company called Jazz Exchange, and I went in there as co-artistic director to help her keep it going. That was very much mixed with the contemporary dance because she was a rombe dancer. So it wasn't what I called strictly, strictly, strictly jazz. It was contemporary jazz. And I wanted to do something that was really no contemporary. This is jazz. What I've learned as time has gone on, is actually jazz is a contemporary art form. And that wasn't that I didn't know that at the time. It was just that everybody was confusing jazz with contemporary. And I wanted to go, nah, nah, nah. let's look at jazz as jazz. It's not contemporary. Let's get the art form sorted out. And then we can understand and work backwards and look how that's seen. And now I really see, and these are the conversations that I have a lot now, is that actually jazz is the contemporary art form. With the difference between contemporary dance, if we're looking at Martha or Cunningham, or they are set in their ways. They are set styles or set techniques. And the same we have in jazz. We have a set pedagogy. We have an aesthetic. We have what is the creative output of that. Now, we can always hark back to Africa, which we have to from a contextual lineage history point of view. But actually, how are we developing our art forms as we move forward? And I've always believed that actually jazz, because it's improvised from its point of making, that it is contemporary because it's continually changing. What I've tried to do with Bop is really say that it can stand as an art form alongside contemporary, alongside classical dance. That is why I started Bop. And that is what the philosophy of Bop has always been. It's an art form. And we have to treat it and respect it with such care in the same way that we treat and we respect ballet and we treat and we respect contemporary dance. And even now hip hop dance or Southeast Asian dance, they are seen as artistic. Then what is the difference? Why not jazz? You said about how for that first performance that then springboarded Bop, you wanted to work with a live jazz band. And I wanted to delve more into kind of the relationship between jazz, dance and music, because I know you founded Bop in collaboration with composer and jazz 
jazz musician Paul Jenkins. Paul, although we don't say it a lot, he is my husband. So the wonderful thing about working with your husband, it means that we don't fight, but it also means that we have a common goal, which is to create original work. I think that for me and for Paul is the essence of what Bop is about, because I've always said that if we can have Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky and we can have all of those high art ballad creators coming together with the music, then the same thing can happen for jazz if we're taking it to the high artistic point of view. Paul is a composer, he's a jazz trumpeter, first and foremost, and an amazing jazz trumpeter, and he's all over our work. But he's also a music producer and a music composer and works with musicians and works with singers. He was able to bring a wealth of musical ideas that would allow me to springboard ideas for creativity or vice versa. I was saying, oh, I've got this fabulous idea, like, for example, one of the numbers that we do, Fusion. And it was really the fusion between the dance and the music. So Paul created a piece of music I created the choreography. It started as improvisation, then it added the dancers to it, and then it ended with improvisation between me and Paul on stage, musically playing the trumpet and me dancing against that. And I think in many ways, Paul and I are so in tune. Our lives have been meant to be together because somehow we collided on a musical theatre project. And Paul was rearranging that and I was directing and choreographing it. And that's how we met. And then I said to him, you know, what is your background? So actually, I'm a jazz musician, Dolly. And I was like, whoa, okay. And that's how our relationship started. I listened to his music. I went, oh, I'd love to work something on that. Oh, let me have that. And we just knew that we had to do something together. We did something really, really crazy I wanted to put a show on again about Duke Ellington but my version of a Duke Ellington show called Duke's Place and we did it at the Cochrane Theatre and then we took it up to Litchfield Theatre in Birmingham and we did a small little tour with it and Paul recreated all the music of Duke Ellington for me I had these spectacular dance numbers that I was able to create songs duets it was amazing and we realized that our working relationship was very organic we didn't really talk much we would just say, oh, what about that? What about that? Oh, I'd like a twist on that. And I think in a past life, I was a musician. And I think in a past life, Paul was a dancer because we are so in tune that even now I can know when a note is not right, I can just say that. And Paul will just pick that feeling up and go off and write it. It's hard to explain. It's something that we know if that makes sense. And I think that's just the artistic buzz that we have together and the creative buzz that we have together to create original jazz work. And that for us is the most important, that we're not recreating anything. We're not about recreating. We're not about taking a Fosse show and recreating a Fosse show. We're about originating new work that can stand the test of time. And actually, most of our work, if I look back at a lot of our work that we've done together over the last 23 years, we're still doing it today and it's still as fresh and as relevant. For the performances that we're doing in a couple of weeks at the place, we've adapted one piece Paul wrote in 2011 called Directions. And what we've done for this performance, we're using it as an opener, actually. It's going to open the whole performance. And I've added, you know, spoken word to it. So it's a completely different number or piece now than it was when we did it in 2011, because we're using completely different dancers as well. This is a completely different show. So we've adapted. And I think that's what we're lucky we can adapt immediately. We can take a piece of music and go, okay, let's take that bit out. Let's put this in. Let's add this. I think we're very blessed. I feel very blessed that I have Paul in my life. I know he feels the same. And we're just lucky 
that we can create some wonderful things together and actually people enjoy it and the dancers love dancing to it and in many ways you need to speak to the people that watch it and do it you know they're the people that will tell you what it feels like because I see that in rehearsals I see that in classes I see that in master classes people do get it it's different it's asking everybody to step out of that square box and jump a little wider than they would normally with jazz you gave some amazing examples of some of your pieces that you're still performing today I just wanted to ask what is a starting point when you're creating something does it come from like an emotion or some kind of thematic idea it's really the music if it's not Paul's music when I want to create something I have to research music so I delve into different pieces of music which then give me ideas. Sometimes I don't know how it happens. I kind of leave myself up to the angels and the gods and say, okay, this is kind of what I want to do today. And I have to trust that something will come through. But actually, if I'm not listening to the right piece of music or the music doesn't tell me something emotional or emotive or bring forward a moment that I can recall and bring back in to create from. So music is kind of the first and the foremost thing that I listen to before I go anywhere. Once I know what the music is, then the pictures, it all becomes pictures in my head. It's like a film. I can see steps, but I don't know what they are and I don't know how they're going to translate once they're on the floor. I can see colours. Yeah, it's like a painting. I trust the improviser in me that I have enough tools and enough knowledge and enough skill set and enough technique to be able to go, okay, that's where I want to take that. For example, one of the pieces that I did that is going to be performed as a solo by one of our dancers, this song came on not long after I'd lost my mum. This piece of music just came on and the lyrics, it was just the lyrics alone, just said to me, you need to choreograph something because you're feeling this. At the moment, this solo piece about my mother is done by a dancer. I'm very just declare and I'm loud, I'm loud. She's kind of the opposite, but her ability to find emotion within her dance is incredible because she's very deep and she's very closed. And so actually what I'm asking her to do in this piece is find anger because it's about the grief and how we go through grief when we lose somebody and all of those emotions that we go through. And that's the tiny little bit that we're working on now, for example. So nothing's ever easy. I'm always going to challenge. And because I challenge myself to be on the spot and go with where you're feeling and try and work that in. I kind of push that on my dancers and it allows them to step out of their comfort zone. So I'm always about pushing buttons, to be quite honest, and getting emotion that will then go into the creativity. Not masochistic at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bop's been around for like, was it 26 years? In terms of evolution, how has the company changed over time and what stayed the same? What stayed the same is the ethos and the principle that we are not doing this for fame, we're not doing this for glory, we're doing this to present the art form as we believe it should be seen. What changes are the dancers and the people that come through the door and then go out. Because we're not a funded company, we're not supported in that way. I'm not going to take that back. For this specific festival, we were blessed that the Arts Council gave us some funding. So we're really, really, really grateful for that. And it'll be like the first time we believe jazz has got anything. So we're over the moon. But we've survived without anything for so long we've learned how to do it we've learned how to survive we've learned how to give back we've learned that we can take from here we've learned that if we work outside of bop all that goes back into bop so you know nothing's changed in that sense all that changes is the dancers the creativity and the pieces change 
depending on who we've got. Like I said, I can take a piece and I can adapt it and readapt it and reshape it and rework it because that's the beautiful thing about jazz. You can have your original, but from the original, there can be so many different other ways you can do it. And that's what I kind of like. That's the change. What has changed creatively is I've had time to sit back and reflect a little bit on what I do and what I'm trying to say now as I've got older, because, you know, I started the company, what, I was 35. So I've changed a lot. And because I've changed as a person, obviously that changes the way I create, that changes the way I see life, that changes the way I teach and I share what I do. And I don't think that's a bad thing because I'm all about change. I know tomorrow will be another day and the day after that will be another day and they can't stay the same because life changes all the time. But the essence in the foundation and the reason why we started and the purpose behind the company, the philosophy, the methodology, the educational side of it, the outreach of it, the sharing it with performers and sharing it with the dance world, that's steadfast, that hasn't changed. I must say, before COVID, it got to a point where I was thinking, I want to do more narrative work out of what Bob does, because, you know, we can do all these wonderful, lovely little ditty pieces for three or five or 10 minutes. But actually, I wanted to do longer versions. So a few years back, we talked about making longer ballets. And we call them ballets just because that's an easier way of explaining what they are rather than a dance number. We've done that with a few numbers, actually. We've done that with a few pieces that have grown. The one that we're going to be working on is called Through the Eyes of a Woman. And we started that in 2019. And we've done two excerpts from that in different places. And again, we will be performing it at this event, just an excerpt of it, because it's an all-female company at the moment. You know, it's the perfect time to rehash that and relook at that and add more. It's constantly changing, Emily. I don't want it to stay static, to be mm-hmm. quite honest. If it stays static, then I'm not doing enough. On the subject of change still, after all this time and all this development and evolution, how do you feel the reception of jazz or the jazz dance scene has changed in the UK over the time that Bop's been operating? Do you think that you've made strides towards what you wanted to achieve when you set it up 26 years ago? Now I see the resonance of it. I'm starting to see the resonance. Just the other day, somebody I taught 25 years ago has just reminded me how much she got out of my classes. And if it wasn't for me, she wouldn't be teaching today. So I get that a lot. So that reminds me that actually I must be doing something right because people got something from it or I've changed somebody's life through it for good or for bad because it's not an easy art form. My worry is at the moment with jazz is that we are not actually teaching it correctly in the sense that I've been doing my thing and everybody knows my style and everybody knows my pedagogy through jazz. But that is kind of alienated between the syllabus system and the reality of what's out there. For me, my only worry is that we're in a situation where we really need to quickly change how we teach the training facilities, the pedagogy, because the pedagogy is all over the place because anyone seems to be able to do jazz without any defined right to do it. You would never get a ballet teacher just coming in from the street and just saying oh I'm a ballet teacher just wouldn't happen but we do have that with jazz and because of that reason it's so disparate at the moment no one seems to know what the real pedagogy of jazz is and what we should be training our students in I do and I'm having the conversations with the organizations with the boards and I'm on all of that I'm an advisor and I'm a consultant and that's great I'm on the think tank tables but it's so slow in turning around well you know we often say 
oh, but we know that jazz is from the black expression. But where is it in the syllabus then? Where are the teachers? Where are the people higher up who make those decisions? So I'm all about that kind of change at the moment. And I'm pretty hard on it because we need to do it quickly before we lose the art form completely. You know, we can no longer say that jazz is just musical theatre because it's not. We can no longer say that jazz is commercial because it's not. These have been modified, codified and appropriated to be in those situations. But if we keep dismissing what I call the root, the essence, we're not doing jazz. Was this some of the motivation as well? Because I know that you and Paul wrote The Essential Guide to Jazz Dance in 2019. Was this some of the motivation as well to kind of have like a landmark text that like brings all these things together in one place? We'd wanted to write a book about jazz for years and we were thinking, oh God, how can we self-publish ourselves? And then in 2016, Crowell Press came to us and asked us, would we write a book on jazz dance? And we were like, whoa, okay. And then it took us three years to write it simply because we had to work in between and I think I was ill at one point yeah I was in hospital for a little while for my lungs what it allowed me to do and Paul as well but what it really allowed me to do as a choreographer and an educator was to sit down and really go through the whole gamut of what jazz was and we knew that in this book we wouldn't be able to write everything but what we could write is a comprehensive guide to what jazz dance really is. A book that was easy to pick up, easy to read, easy to follow, but gave you the detail. Enough for you to then go, oh, let me go and research that. I'm not an academic, I'm a creative first, but writing this book also fortified my understanding that I knew what I was talking about. (laughs) I knew what this art form was because in many ways, often you think, well, I'm just doing this because I love it. No, I'm doing this because I need to do it. I need to share the truth. And if people have a little carrot to get into a book, to read it, to then go, oh, okay, let me go and springboard and find out a little bit more about that person, this person, that music. We wanted to make sure that tap was in there because tap is the forefather of jazz. Without tap, we don't have jazz. It's the original vernacular. So all of those things, all those innovators, the journey of it coming from the plantation, all the way through to where we are today. There are many people that have made the jazz art form happen. And it's just that when I read books and I have read books, we are not reading about the people who've made it what it is today. So we wanted to make sure they were mentioned. We wanted to make sure the modern day creatives and innovators were in there as well. So that we're not always talking about what has gone before. We need to look at where is it going and who is doing it. So it's very much about that. We realise a lot of teachers and a lot of dancers don't listen to jazz music. So they have no understanding about the oral knowledge of jazz music that goes with jazz dance because the two are married. Without the dance, you don't have the music. And without the music, you don't have the dance. That's how it started, because it's part of the culture. You go back to Africa, you realise that everything that happens in Africa is either by song, by word, by poem, by dance. And it's natural. When you pop out, you know how to sing, you know how to dance. And people laugh about it And I'm not being on PC I'm just saying that's a natural thing for us As black folk We are loud, we sing, we dance, we rejoice It's part of celebrating life, jazz And that for me is the bit that has been taken out of jazz Is the celebration of it It's a celebration of our own individuality It's our community coming together It's for the sun, it's for the moon It's for death, it's for coming of age You mentioned the word celebration Jazz being a celebratory art form Which I think leads well onto talking about the project that you're working on at the minute which we've been alluding to which is the inaugural (laughs) jazz arts rewired festival which is going 
going to consist of workshops and also performances at the place in London and that's going to celebrate the diversity and creativity of jazz theatre in the UK. How did the idea for this festival first come about? Oh my gosh we've always wanted to do something like this and I suppose in many ways it's how time leads you to do that. We set up an organisation in 2021 during Covid time and we had a conversation with One Dance UK because we realised even in One Dance UK they didn't have anything to do with jazz. I am a corporate member, I pay my membership and I wanted to know what One Dance UK were going to give me for my membership money because they weren't doing anything in jazz. And so that precipitated a conversation with the people higher up. And we sat down and we said to them, look, we can help you if you can help us. You don't have anything for jazz. And this is One Dance UK. You're supposed to serve dance for the country. There's nothing there for the jazz community. We will start a network that will work in tandem with One Dance UK so that we can start to let people know there is a network for the jazz theatre community, those that didn't want to just do commercial but wanted to take it to another level. So we started a network called Jazz Theatre Arts UK and we partnered up with One Dance UK. And during the conversations over a year, we've done Zoom things and we've opened up our classes. We've opened up the company so that people can come in and do masterclasses and join the company classes and work with our dancers. You know, we've been saying it for a while. What we need is a jazz convention. We realised that there were so many things that we as jazz artists could not be part of, like Dance Umbrella would not invite. Sadler's Wells doesn't invite us in. All of these named organisations are not letting us in. Okay, we need to do it for ourselves then. Let's do a small mini convention that is purely for the jazz, purely for jazz artists and purely for jazz talk and purely for jazz students and artists. We set about putting this together and literally, I think it's not even nine months ago, we spoke about it and here we are making it happen. And in those nine months, we've managed to bring in some amazing, amazing artists, some that we've worked with before. But as we explained to them, there is no platform for you. Where do you go and put your work out? We don't. Okay, so this is why we're doing Jazz Arts Rewired. We called it Jazz Arts Rewired because we are literally rewiring it to something that's going to spark off. And that's how I see it, like a plug. Jazz Art Rewired, we're putting the plug in. Okay, boom, now we're going to open something up. Our hope is that this event will not just be this year, but will be continual years and will grow and grow and grow and grow. You know, we've got some amazing artists. We've got Blake Arts. He does come from a contemporary background, Horton. He's immersed in the whole jazz and black dance. We've got Jarena Green, who's authentic jazz. So she's bringing work and doing a workshop as well and masterclass and a performance with her company, which is based on authentic jazz, Lindy Hop. You know, obviously we've got Bop doing what we do, which is our original work. We've got Neo Nathan. He's a jazz hip hop creator. And so he's doing a piece. And we've got Benjamin Cutting, again, locking, which is part of the jazz tradition so what we try to do is we try to get artists that are connected in every single way with the art form of jazz but they come in with their own dialect and their own language and for us it was about being eclectic we made it very clear we didn't want musical theater we didn't want commercial dance this event was to put on display the creativity and the artistry the nuances of jazz because under the umbrella of jazz it's not just one thing there are many many strands to jazz and we just wanted to make sure we touched on a few of those yeah. within the performance and the same for the master classes that allows dancers who would not normally normally 
get an opportunity to do these kind of classes, to have a day of it. Got CPD teachers seminar where we're going to talk to teachers and practitioners about the book, about equality and diversity within what they do, how they can practice themselves and develop themselves as artists within their teaching frame. And then we've got Let's Talk Jazz, which is leading organisations and leading jazz artists and performers we're talking about the state of jazz in the UK today. We're calling it the black and white of jazz in the UK and how it's evolved and how it is not evolving and how it can evolve. So it's about debate and deliberation and delivery. I guess we're very hyped about it at the moment because it's selling well. People are very interested. We know people can and cannot come, but we know that they know it's going on. And I think for us to be able to put something out at this time, when everything is really, really hard and really difficult for anyone to put anything on at the moment, we're really excited to be doing that along with One Dance UK and the support of the place. Claire Connor at the place, she was amazing. She rolled with the idea when we said, look, we want to find somewhere. Would you be interested in this? Absolutely. I see what you're talking about. We don't do jazz here and it is a contemporary art form. Let's bring it into the place. So it's kind of opened some doors for us, actually making the event happen. It's kind of pushing the doors open for us to go through and say, actually, yeah, it's not all trivial, actually, ladies and gentlemen. If you really want to get into the art form, it's really very, very interesting. I was going to say, actually, because obviously things like the masterclasses will be for people who are in the industry and dancers and, and things. But also by doing the performance and it being at the place, which is predominantly until now been like a contemporary dance venue, contemporary dance in the inverted commas that we spoke about before hopefully as well that that will introduce new audiences this is very much what we said to claire and the place and the one dance uk is that unless you kind of legitimize it a little bit because actually what jazz hasn't been able to do is be seen as a legitimate art form it's not going oh poor us poor us it's just saying actually it needs the same reverence as every other dance art form why is it not getting it and we're prepared to put ourselves on the line and say this is what it is. You know, the place has never done jazz. I think I was there for resolutions with Bop actually in 1997 and they found the video not so long ago. Yeah, 1997, we went there and we did resolutions. I did a piece called Dizzy Heights and it was 45 minutes long and it sold out resolutions for that performance. And so it's been since then till now that we've never been able to go back there. And since Claire as a new CEO there has allowed us to come through the door again. So I'm hoping that it will not only lift us, but it will lift the place as well. It will lift One Dance UK and it will lift other people to know, ah, I can have a career in jazz dance. Oh, there are other classes other than commercial dance, jazz dance. If it wakes somebody up, then we've done our job. Well, not everybody's gonna be into it because they don't understand it. But I think what the, the whole event allows is for people to come in and be immersed in it to see what it really is all about and come in and be part of that. Because, you know, I'm not saying that we're crazy, but we're good fun. <laughs> we're coming with a lot of energy and a lot of passion and a lot of joy. And as I say, that's the celebratory part. That's the kernel of it. That joy base of expression is the kernel of jazz. Now we're kind of coming to the end of the podcast and we've done a lot of reflection, but I wanted to do a bit of looking to the future and ask you, obviously I'm sure there's so many things, but do you have any specific ambitions for the future of Bop or for yourself personally or for the future of jazz in the UK that you'd like to share with us? Personally, I just want to have enough time to be able to encapsulate everything that I've ever wanted through 
bop and through doing what I do as a creative artist and a dancer and a teacher and a lecturer or whatever. If I get to write another book, great. I don't think so at the moment because it was a lot of hard work. But, you know, creating shows, yes. For jazz, I would really like the platform for jazz to be fair, equal and distributed so that we can all have the opportunity to share what we do. We're not pushed to the side as if we're not anything, in England particularly. I want it to be as as visible as ballet and as contemporary dance. That's my high hope for jazz. For Bob, I just want to be able to keep doing what we're doing, enable other dancers and more dancers to come through the Bob door so that we can share with them. I want to be able to be in a situation where we're not begging for money, but in a position where we can go and people will see what we're doing and want to support it and want to fund it and want to put in energy towards it because it's going to benefit them as well. We're not about taking, we're about giving. And I think once people understand that's what we do and that's what jazz is about, it's a giving art form. It's there for everybody to take, but it needs respect and it needs acknowledgement and it needs to be understood. And once all of that is done, then we'll be on our way to making jazz something that is a norm in this country and not an abnormal thing. Amazing. And then we've come to the very final question. As this is the Tepsicree podcast and we focus on leading women from the dance industry, we like to ask everyone, if you could meet and talk to any female dance pioneer from history, who would it be and why? Catherine Dunham. You know, I met a lot of people in America. I never met her and I never would have met her. I was after her time. So she's somebody that if I was having a dinner party, she would be one of my guests. And I would just ask her, am I on the right path? Even now at 61, am I on the right path? Because I'm following you and I hope I'm doing you justice. Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for your time today. It's been so amazing to speak to you and best of luck for everything with the festival. Yeah, thank you so much, Emily. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the 18th episode of the Terpsichore podcast with the amazing Dolly Henry. If you'd like to find out more about Dolly's work, why not follow Bop Jazz UK on Instagram or check out their website at www.bop.org.uk. If you're based in London, also don't forget to head over to The Place for the inaugural Jazz Arts Rewired Festival, with masterclasses taking place on Saturday the 27th of May and an evening of performances on Saturday the 3rd of June. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe and leave us a rating and review, as it helps other people to find us. You can also follow the Tepsichore podcast on Instagram at tepsichore underscore podcast or Twitter at tepsichore underscore pod. Thanks so much again for listening to the Tepsichore podcast with me, Emily May.